Well, thank you, and um, what a, how precious to be here this afternoon. Thank you, and uh, refreshing for the soul, actually. I, I um, almost think I don't need to preach. I can just give you the blessing and we go home because the Lord has ministered through you as you've introduced the service and through the worship. But I will if you want me to. I will preach for a little bit. So um, I, I um, and I've changed what I was going to say because of, because of how you've introduced it. So um, how long do you want me to speak for? Or is it when I see you start to close your eyes? They always say the ideal sermon feels like 15 minutes, don't they? And the trouble is a four-minute can feel like 15 and an hour-long can still feel like 15, depending on who's speaking. But actually, it's not about the preacher, is it? It's about God's Word mediated by His Holy Spirit into our own hearts. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the most precious gift of your Word. But even more so for the gift of your Holy Spirit active in our lives. We cry out for you to fill us afresh this this evening. Why? So that we might see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and then follow more nearly, step by step of the way that you draw us on. So open our eyes to behold you in your word tonight. Amen. So, um, I was, um, my starting point before I encountered your worship was some of the sayings of John in John's Gospel. John, the apostle of love, Jesus' closest friend, who wrote a most remarkable John's Gospel, unlike the other three. You know, I, I've done a bit of work with groups of young people in the last couple of years where I divide them into four. And those who are the raconteurs, who can hold your attention, who can tell a good joke, I give them Mark. So go and read it. Read it quickly. Read it again and again, and then let's bring back to the study what you've read. The very clever ones. I give Matthew's gospel to read. You know, study this manual of discipleship. Study the things that you discover about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus in such a beautifully ordered way, echoing the Old Testament Torah as the Ma- Matthew explains how Jesus is the Messiah and almost like the Torah takes you down the journey into deep discipleship. For the historians, the careful ones in the audience, uh, I give them Luke. Go and read Luke's Gospel. It's an ordered account. It's historical. It describes almost chronologically what's going on. But to my favorite group, who are the poets, and the musicians, go and read John and discover, and, and you know, I've, I, I've done this twice and I'm going to go on doing it, I think, because I end up with an eight or nine week uh, group of teenagers who become Christians as they debate the Jesus they've discovered in the reading of the four Gospels. So I unashamedly say, let's keep going back to the Gospels. And if you were to read Luke, you'd find that there are seven things he says about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door in John 10. I am the good shepherd again in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, what a great way to end your Alpha course and discover, yes, we have discovered 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the final one, I am the vine. That beautiful picture of how we become the body of Jesus as his people. And then you might turn up 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, probably also written by the same beloved disciple of Jesus. And by the time he writes those words, he's called the apostle of love. For we discover that this is love, that God first loved us. And those who love live in God, and God lives in them. But if we were to wind on a few years, we discover this same Apostle John, probably every single one of the other disciples, has met an awful, cruel death. Some of those early Christians may have witnessed the crosses along the Apian Way as believer after believer is nailed to a cross and left to die after the pattern of Jesus. And why are they executed only on one charge? That they refuse the cult of the emperor. They will not say Caesar is Lord. They will go to the cross saying Jesus is Lord. And how does John reconcile that beautiful picture of the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ? How does he reconcile that it looked as if all things had come in the Messiah, that the king they longed for is Lord and King, that the king they longed for has set us free, that he is the one who's brought us life in all its fullness, John 10.10. 10. How does he reconcile that with his own exile on Patmos, with his utter isolation, with the stories that will be reaching him of ongoing awful persecution? And what does he do? He writes the book of the Revelation. And I, I, may have, I may have misconstrued it, but it seemed to me as though Revelation inspired almost every single one of the worship songs we sung tonight. That we were being invited to go from the persecuted church to I'll sing a little louder. I'll sing a little louder. Jesus is Lord. And in graphic ways through Revelation, we discover that he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. That what looks like we have lost everything, we dare to say. And today, the book of Revelation is often, most powerfully, I think, commentated upon amongst the churches that are being persecuted. That there's something deep in this imagery that we find sometimes, frankly, a bit weird. But there's something that goes through the apocryphal writing that says there is a spiritual battle that looks like we've lost, but we haven't. And so I'm just going to read for our text, Revelation 21. There's a bit of personal, and there's always personal poignancy, isn't there? Daughter of, my fr- of a friend of mine, age 25, had a, got married to another young man. To, she, she and the young man both Leaders already, part of a church planting team in New Frontiers, children of Anglican vicars, I need to tell you quickly. Um, And they had Revelation 21 for their wedding reading. But what was poignant was two days later, that two years later, they died in a tragic accident. These two church leaders who 
and a vehicle that fell off the side of a cliff on a Greek island. And they decided, their parents decided they would have Revelation 21 as their funeral reading. Two years later. And as you'd expect, and I've only once before been in a funeral with two coffins, two sisters who died in a house, never a husband and wife, age 27, two coffins at the front of church, assaulting you in every way. All the things that we hold dear, all our hopes and dreams for children and grandchildren, all the hopes and dreams for a young couple sold out for Christ, not wanting to be conformed to any of the expectations of this world, and they've gone. And I think both at a personal level and at a global level, as you have meditated tonight on the persecuted church, who has won? Who has the victory? And at times in our human experience, it looks as though the evil one has won. As you'd expect at a funeral of two 27-year-olds, there were three or 400 in the church and 600 outside in the churchyard. It was, it was on the A3 at St. Mark's Kennington. And uh, the young pastor taking the service and the young man preaching... It's the first time a young pastor had ever taken a funeral. It's the first time the preacher had preached at a funeral. And I, just as an aside, and slightly flippantly, I was sitting there as a bishop thinking, why have they put the children up? <laughs> it was astonishing. But, but I thought they're going to be triumphalist. They're going to skate over the difficult bits. Not at all. They took me to a place I didn't know I could go to. I went to talk to them after and said, you're amazing. And for both of them, they said, it's the first time we've ever had to do this. I thought, there is hope. If, if the church leaders of the next generation can cope with the worst that the human race can throw at them, the worst that the evil one can do, and still proclaim that he is Lord and he is King, then... It's not as bad as we think it is. It will be far, far better. For he is Lord. He is King. And then slightly bizarrely, we, started, we, fin- we ended by singing, Thine is the glory. And the traffic on the A3 stopped. And I don't know whether it was just two drivers that saw the crowd and heard the song. But for three or four minutes, the traffic stopped as the hymn, Thine Be the Glory, echoed across the A3, as the entire churchyard sang it. And I wondered in that moment, are we close to where we were tonight? That there is a praise, we dare to, to shout Alleluia in the face of the enemy. We dare to shout Alleluia, not because we're into some fantasy stuff, Not because we're into denial, but because we dare to inhabit the very worst of what's in front of us. We don't explain it away. We don't sanitize it. We dare to sing the alleluias in the face of the enemy. So Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. On the 9th of June, 2020, I got a phone call from Effie Blanks. George Floyd's funeral, will you come to the Peace Gardens in Basingstoke? And then would you speak from the platform? Middle of COVID, middle of restrictions. A lot of politicians, a lot of church leaders were advised not to gather. We kept the distance. And I decided to take the knee. And I spoke. And I gave a reflection on the final words that George Floyd spoke with a knee on his throat when he said, I cannot breathe. On Monday this week, we had the final event of Black History Month here in Basingstoke. An astonishing event with a huge number of lives and stories brought into focus, people who've shaped this town of Basingstoke. From the Windrunge generation through to much more recent migrations into this town and to this nation. People who've enriched our lives. And I'm reminded, as we all need to be, that our culture is set by the stories we tell. I want to say... The main stories we need to tell as the Christian community are always the biblical New Testament stories. Um, if I had a preference, always the stories of Jesus' encounters with people. That's what you get in Alpha. I have done Alpha or an Alpha equivalent, I think something like 80 times. And I will go on doing it. Because every time I do it, I discover more, deeper places. And you discover a commonality with those who are, who are reading the story for the first time, who've never encountered the stories before. But those stories 
of what changes our lives are not simply 2,000-year-old stories. I had quite an interesting uh, encounter with two young men on one of these courses because I was reflecting on Jericho, the town of Jericho. You know Jericho? There were two people in Jericho that met Jesus on the same day. One was a blind man called Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He sat. He was desperate. He couldn't see. He couldn't work. He was destitute. He had, if you like, a McDonald's cup in front of him. Hungry, please help. Except he didn't sit quietly. He shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the more he was ignored, the louder he shouted. And so the elders of the Hub Community Church tried to quieten him down. Yeah, we've got some more important things to think about. We need to hear what this man has to say. Please be quiet. And the more they asked him to be quiet, the more Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you know what happened? He took, it's, it's slightly bizarre, isn't it? He took some, some mud, he spat on it and wiped on his eyes. Can you see? I can see, but it looks like men stick trees walking. Yeah, we, well taught church. <laughs> so he, he puts his hands again. I see clearly. And a few minutes later, an hour or so later, he's in the village square. And there's a nasty man, isn't there, who's the wealthiest man in the town, who's defrauded, who's colluded with the occupying authority of the Roman Empire, who's made his money in really dodgy ways. And um, he's short. And this is the chance for the crowd to sort him because they kept jostling so he couldn't get, he couldn't get, he climbs the tree. And he also gets the shock of his life when Jesus stops and looks him in the eye. Come down, I'm coming to your house. I wish, don't you wish, we had a record of the conversation? All we know is that he came out and said he'd repay anyone he'd defrauded four times over. And he'd give half his wealth, residual wealth, away to the poor. Now, here's the thing for me. I want to know what happened the following month. What happens when Bartimaeus has a job in the town and Zacchaeus, who was hated, has had a complete turn of character? What happens to the poorest and the wealthiest man in the town who've met Jesus? A 13-year-old Hamish in my study group said, Bishop, it's obvious. Amish, I've studied the scriptures for 45 years. It's obvious, he says, Bishop, it gets finished in your life and in mine. It gets finished in your life and in mine. That's That's it, isn't it? Isn't that the profound truth? You know, that the living word of God begins to transform us as we encounter Jesus in the power of the Spirit as our attitudes are changed, as we begin to find our character conformed to the character of Jesus. And then our actions follow from that character. You can read Matthew 5 and read those eight extraordinary characteristics of a godly person. You know, the applause of heaven that is expressed over those beatitudes. Be happy, be blessed. If these are the things, the peacemaker, the one who loves mercy... But it's not a rule book that you have to follow to be saved. It's the result of being saved. It's the result of 
the encounter, Bartimaeus' encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus, your encounter with Jesus, my encounter with Jesus, that begins to transform. So we begin to live in ways that are unrecognizable. And that's, I think, why they went to the crucifixions on the Apian Way. You see, I've often thought, and in my youth, I thought, why didn't you just cross your fingers behind your back? It's all right, Jesus, it's Jesus, Lord, for today. It's okay. Tomorrow I'll be back. That's a sort of Western compromise, isn't it? Because there was no joke about this discipleship. It changed everything. It brought the life of God into our lives. It brought the reality of the presence of the living Son of God who dares to call you and me brothers and sisters, joint heirs of the kingdom of God. We do indeed serve another king. We do indeed have another Lord. This is no vocal assent or vocal allegiance. It transforms your character and transforms your life. I can't breathe, said George Floyd. And from that phrase, I think, has birthed a whole new and creative way of looking at who we are and our identity as human beings in Christ. But on Monday night, I was asked not to speak about George Floyd, but to speak about Palestine. Conscious that one of our community leaders, a Muslim called Islam Jalaita, is himself Palestinian. How do you speak and how do you think of Gaza, of the West Bank, and of Israel? Do you have a political view? What is God's view of what's going on? And I don't know if I'm honest, but I know what Jesus did over Jerusalem. Just as in this passage in Revelation we're told that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eye. We know from when he stood over Jerusalem, that shortest verse that in my childhood was used as a profanity. I don't hear it anymore, so thank the Lord. The shortest verse in the New Testament is Jesus wept. What moved him to weep? He said, oh, that you might know what makes for peace. And that idea of Jesus being heartbroken is something I find very compelling. Dare we ask the Lord to break our hearts over the things that we see and join in with. You see, we want to explain it. We want a rationale about how we might navigate evil. But it seemed to me the Lord himself simply allowed his heart to break. And so as people, I think, in Gaza, the West Bank, and in Jerusalem, on both sides of the city, might well be saying tonight, I can't breathe. I find myself with two images. The image of the Christian hospital in Gaza that took direct hits. But I heard yesterday that 35 members of the Messianic Christian Fellowship in Jerusalem have been called up to join the Israeli Defense Force because they are reservists. 
people who are Jewish heritage, who have found in Jesus Christ their Savior. 35 from one church have been recalled into the Israeli Defense Force. We can't demonize one side and celebrate the other. But what's the deeper story of what God is doing? And what is clear is we cannot see it clearly in human terms. We cannot see it in the human realm. Which is why when you led us, I just thought it was so extraordinary to take us through that segue of worship where again and again we dare to shout an hallelujah. Not in the face of something we're confused by. In the face of the enemy. In the face of evil. I wonder when you gather to worship what it is we're really saying. You see, it seems to me we can turn up and share good stories of what, we go, what goes on. I have my, I've got two little grandsons. Got a little bit of an issue with my children. My mother was a grandmother in her 40s. Why am I in my 60s? I don't know. Anyway, I'm an old man. I've just become a grandfather twice. And one grandson we looked after. That's why I'm a bit... That's why I, got, that's why I came in last minute. Sorry. I have been to three events today already, but it was the grandson that caused the lateness. And I don't know if I... You know, there's, I love... It's not recorded, is it? I love my grandchildren more than I love my kids. <laughs> it is recorded. <laughs> I don't, know if, if, I don't know if other grandparents can confess to that as well. It do, I don't know if we just, there's something that happens. You know, I take a bullet from my grandsons. I will stand. I will not cross the road in the way I would cross with my children when they were young. I will be the side of the traffic. There's something. I don't know what it is. And to see, you know, maybe you can pay more attention than you could 35, 38 years ago. And, uh, you know, to to have the two-year-old giving a constant commentary on my life is fascinating. (laughs) So your heart starts to to expand, even your soul expands, doesn't it, as you experience a deeper love. And then I look at my son-in-law, who I think is a far better father than I was, and he he was head of counterterrorism. In, um, in East Africa. He's, tonight he's flown out to take up a role in Mogadishu in Somalia with an eight, leaving his eight-week-old and my daughter living with us. So he's gone in. He's living in Somalia. He'll arrive in Somalia tomorrow morning, which is on your list. And uh, his, he, he almost resigned last week because he couldn't, he couldn't reconcile his eight-week-old baby in England with his next tour of duty. Um, So we pray for him. But um, but the stories he tells are also stories of complete, sort of almost you can't reconcile the two. Every time he trains special forces in East Africa, the training course, and he finds it utterly bizarre. 
always, always starts with a long prayer meeting and ends with a long prayer meeting. And yet, in Garissa, when the Al-Shabaab attacked the university in Garissa in northeastern Kenya, and they came in with their, with their AK-47s, and they lined the students up, and those who could recite the Quran went free, and those who couldn't got killed. And they didn't ask, are you Roman Catholic? Are you church? Are you Anglican? Are you community church? Are you Pentecostal? They just killed those they believed were Christians. And it struck me that this is revelation all over again. That our differences in the Christian community don't count when the enemy comes. Is Jesus Lord or not? And it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul would seem to say, Jesus is Lord, is your mark of entrance into the Christian community. And our temptation is, well, it's just a phrase. But when he wrote it, it was life or death. It was utterly transformative. And so when you come into worship, what is it you're saying? Because is it that there are things to celebrate like your grandson or you know, the holiday you've just been on or the place, the awe and wonder that you've just experienced or sense of almost euphoria as you've gathered with friends and celebrated? Or is it the bleakness? And there are always, I think, these huge contrasts. Is it lush plenty, a fruitful earth? Or is it a famine and a starvation? Is God in the plenty and God absent in the famine? But when you worship, you make some bold assertions. For you claim that of two contrasting sets of, of appearance, if you like, on one hand, hunger, exploitation, warfare, barrenness, and indifference, on the other hand, goodness, order, plenty, compassion, that I am going to trust the latter, not the former. That when you worship, and particularly tonight... <laughs> You declare that in this wonderful and terrifying universe, it is ultimately even more wonderful and ultimately much less terrifying than appears on the surface. When you worship, you affirm that in addition to all that can be quantified, tied down, described, measured, and explained, there is a realm that you can only experience, you can only respond to, and you can choose to deny or obey. And in worship, you resoundly assert the inadequacy, the untruth of materialism. You also deny that mindless chaos rules. You affirm that darkness, extinction, and emptiness will not have the last word. You will say this, God is, God acts, and God cares. as you look on the world with all its beauty and glory and plenty, but also with its unpredictability, its ugliness and its barrenness, you're tempted to think you've got a set of scales. It's all in the balance. On one side, you'll put love and goodness and God. On the other side, barrenness, indifference and emptiness. 
which side is going to win. But for the writer of the Revelation and for us, there is a deciding factor. And it is Jesus Christ. For he rings true. In him you see the light of God. And the key to all these tensions, be they in Gaza or in Basingstoke. For in our Gospels there is an uncontrived story that persuades us that in Jesus, life and death, love and hatred, light and darkness, these opposites have contended. And Jesus is victor, Lord and King. And this is the Lord who bids us welcome, assures us that despite our waywardness, despite our blindness, despite our confusion, despite our emptiness and our sinfulness, you and I can be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Or in the words of John's Gospel, that Jesus, the bread of life, says, whoever comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst again. So as you contemplate whether you're going to pick up that invitation to Alpha. I don't what's the capacity? <laughs> How many in that room? You'll move it back in here, won't you? You'll get a takeaway in here if you can't fit in there. <laughs> I just wonder, you know, I'm seeing people signing up for this thing in a way they would never have done before. I don't know if we've just come long enough out of COVID. You know, if you're just thinking, oh, I've got other things to do that night, go home and ask the Lord. And, and although I would say come on your own because, you know, it will always be worth it, it's much better. You will, you will walk further in Christ if you bring someone else with you. That's not, that's not a cause and effect. It's just that as you interpret your faith to someone else, ask someone you've asked before, ask someone who you think, you know, cause this church a huge problem. Because I believe it's true. And it changes everything. You see, the God we want so often, even as Christians, is a God in our own image. We really would like a comfortable God who helps us when we pray. Dare I say, we quite like to manipulate that God and use that God. It's a sort of genie in the pocket for us, isn't it? But no, I'm really sorry about this. But in Jesus, God comes to us with really tough moral and spiritual demands. So much so that people with joy, with joy, said Jesus is Lord on the Apian way. And what does he do? Well, I think he insists that you are your brother's keeper. You don't have to get all intense about it, but I do think the spiritual destiny of your colleague, you have some responsibility in that. But don't be defeated by it. Just ask them to come to Alpha. I think this is the God who would say, you cannot live by bread alone. So it's not about our overtime or our bonuses or our pension fund, or mitigating risks by putting more and more money away to save for our old age. 
I, I don't think that is to follow Christ. I don't think any church, by the way, and I talk to the Anglican Church far more than to you, I don't think any church should have a financial issue in this country. You've got masses of money that's just in your bank account and in mine. <laughs> Do you know, the last time I did that, I said to, I, I, the treasurer wrote to me and asked me to take a standing order out. <laughs> And I had to because I thought, well, I did preach at a better church. <laughs> not a church I belonged to, a church I was preaching at. <laughs> you cannot live by bread alone. So what are we living for? I believe we're asked to let go of our lesser securities, to live a life of faith, to trust in him, to care, to share, to take up the cross and to follow the Lord Jesus in a humble discipleship. And you will find, always find, that you can hold on to the promise of Jesus himself, who would say to you and to me, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so I think I want to end by simply saying, this is our prayer, isn't it? That Jesus, the bread of life, the light of life, that he will create a much deeper spiritual hunger in each one of us. And we will find that he will then meet that hunger in a glad and joyful abundance. And from that glad and joyful abundance, you'll be surprised who says yes. And maybe even causes a headache for the alpha organizer. But forgive me for using that as the illustration because actually it's much bigger than that, isn't it? It's about inviting people to join in our life. Not because our life is anything to commend it to, but because in our life is Christ. And he is the one, the only one, we seek to commend. Amen.